Welcome to CT Church. This message was recorded during our Sunday service. We hope you enjoy this presentation. I've been excited about today. Uh, We have with us Scott Gillis from a ministry entitled Creation Ministries International. And by the time he's finished speaking this morning, I think you're going to have a lot uh, clearer idea on how to have a Christian defense of creationism. And uh, so uh, I believe we want to start with a short video. Is that right? And then we'll welcome Scott Gillis this morning. ancestors understood origins by extrapolating from their own experience. How else could they have done it? Then science came along and taught us that we are not the measure of all things. The simplest explanation is, there is no God. No one created the universe, and no one directs our fate. You and I are the product of billions, billions share a of common years, ancestor with chimpanzee. This animal eventually became human. I'm sorry, but if you don't understand that humans and monkeys came from a common ancestor... single out evolution and act as if there's some kind of major scientific dispute, and in fact... Evolution is a fact, not a theory. Evolution is a fact. I mean, that's right. There's no question Evolution isn't an opinion, it's fact. Evolution is a scientific fact. I'm sorry, I believe in evolution. Lived in the ocean 200 million years ago. Eight million years ago, we emerged from microbes and mice. All right, very much appreciate the opportunity to be here this morning. And I've already had some people ask me who is Creation Ministries International, and let me get that out of the way. Um, We literally are international. We have offices in seven countries on five continents. We speak in over 1,000 churches worldwide every year. Our Creation Magazine, which you'll hear more about as we go on today, goes out to 110 countries. Our resources are uh, translated into as many as 26 languages. Um, and we employ more PhD scientists than any ministry in the world. Kind of sounds impressive a little bit, yeah? Yeah, but that's not what we're about. And let me see if I can explain that to you. How many of you, when you've been out sharing your faith, have had people ask you questions like this? I mean, did God really create in six days like the Bible says? I mean, after all, I mean, science has proven that evolution in millions of years are a fact. And what about the ape men? Uh, What about carbon dating? Uh, Was there really a global flood? And if so, how did he fit, how did Noah fit all those animals on the ark? And why does a loving God allow death and suffering? Now, tell me, if you've been asked those questions when you've been sharing your faith, would you do me a favor and put your hand up in the air real high and now look around the room? That's what our ministry is about, is in order to give you answers to those and many more questions that people are asking in our culture in order to defend a clear reading of what the Bible says. And you can find those answers on our website. And our website address is kind of hard to remember, so if you don't mind, we're going to do a little science this morning. Is that okay? (laughs) I don't know if you know this, but it's been proven scientifically that if you say something out loud with your mouth, you're more apt to have it imprinted into your brain. Okay, so to help you memorize this uh, website address, would you guys all 
Say this together with me. Ready? Creation.com. Now, can you remember that? And if you were to go there this afternoon, you'd find over 13,000 articles written by our scientists and professionals around the world answering those and many more questions. You know, for example, perhaps you know this fellow, right? I mean, we got some tragic news a number of years ago. What happened? He died. And how did he die? He was stung by a stingray into his heart. And people wrote into our ministry, and they said, oh, yeah? Well, tell me this. Why would a loving God create stingrays that can kill? (laughs) Gotcha. But you know what? It's a fair question. And for those people that sign up for our free email newsletter, they receive this article in their email. And in only 10 days, this became our most visited article ever because believers like you were using it as an evangelism tool to pass that on to their family and friends, showing them that there is a biblical and scientific answer to what many consider to be a tough question. And you know, those questions are in our culture all the time. In the news, you hear about like the latest dinosaur discovery that proves that evolution is a fact. Have you guys read things like this? Or or maybe the missing link between ape-like creatures and man? Well, chances are our scientists and professionals are writing an article that you can use as an evangelism tool to forward it on to your family and friends to show them that there are answers. So I would like to invite everyone here to sign up for our free email newsletter. Only comes out about once a week, so we're not gonna spam you, but it'll keep you up to date on the latest information in the creation and evolution debate. So if my friends could go ahead and distribute those, and if you could do me a favor and just pass those back so everybody gets a chance to sign up, that would be great. It'll help equip your family with the truth. But how many people here Know that kids hear about evolution 24-7. Am I right? Now, now, if that's the case, where are they going to hear a biblical answer? Is it going to be when they turn on the TV? How about when they go to school? I mean, certainly by the time they get to be in the university. So please understand the heart of our ministry is to equip believers like you for the sake of your families and your neighbors and your friends to show them that there are answers to that. And you can find those answers to those questions. Where again, everybody? All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started with the presentation. Now, you folks in Texas can probably tell because of my funny accent that I come from a foreign land. That's right. It's called California. Now, (laughs) I don't want you to hold that against me because I'm actually not a native of California, but I did live there for 29 years. And uh, I had to adapt to my environment, like any good organism should, you know. I'm kind of into science a little. So to prove to you that I did so, here is me catching a wicked 12-inch wave, all right? And luckily, I have a graphic artist that works for me that makes me look a little bit more macho than I really am. (laughs) But I would like to introduce you to my friend, Sammy. Now, Sammy is my friend back in California. He's a He's a native of California, and he loves to surf. He fits the stereotype, but get this. He's also a professional California beach lifeguard. And a number of years ago, he was assigned to patrol Pismo Beach. However, it was his day off, so he took his quad out, and he was riding up and down the sand dunes all day long, enjoying a very hot and sunny day. But when the sun came and hit the Pacific Ocean, He knew it was time to go back to camp and rest up for his next day's work. However, in the darkness, a storm had come up, 
And when he reached this very spot on the beach, there were a dozen people there yelling, waving their arms to get his attention. And when he drove over there, he found that there was a surfboard there at their feet on the beach, but the surfer was 100 yards off. It was already dark, and yet the waves had eight-foot faces and were picking up his body, throwing him into the lava rocks below, and he was severely lacerated from head to toe. Screaming in pain, of course, Sammy had a tough decision to make because he was physically exhausted. He had no flotation devices. The waves were very uh, wretched. But nonetheless, he did take off his helmet and his boots and those things that would weigh him down and struggled and got out to that man and helped him come back to shore and saved his life. But let me ask you guys a question this morning. Why did he do it while those 12 people stood there and watched? Why? experience, training, he was equipped. He knew how to navigate those waves. But you know, I think our culture is kind of like that surf. You know, those waves are like the questions that people are asking, like, is there a God? And does he love me? And how about this last one? Is the Bible true? Now, am I right in our culture that's been answered with a resounding no? Because most people believe that science is proven that evolution and millions of years are a fact. And you know what? If that is true, it stands against what the Bible says. That's why we as believers need to have a defense. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, does this sound like a suggestion or a command? It's a command for every believer. And by the way, this word answer comes from a Greek word, which is apologian, okay? And what that was is it was a legal term used in the courts of law in order to describe what an attorney would do in order to defend his client or perhaps prosecute the accused. It's a reasoned, rational, and logical defense for something. Now, let me ask everyone here this morning, does this sound like you? Are you always prepared, which would be right now, with a defense for your faith, including in the area where the Bible is being attacked more than any other place in our culture, in the creation and evolution debate? And if you don't believe me, just go turn your TV on when you come home. Look in books and magazines, textbooks. Most people hear that evolution and millions of years are a fact. We need to have a defense. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about science today. I don't know how often you do that in church. I seem to do it every week. But <laughs> did you know there are actually scientific statements in the Bible? For example, in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, there's a phrase that is repeated 10 times. It says that God created plants and animals after their own what? Kind. Now, that basically means that dogs give birth to dogs, Pigs give birth to pigs, and corn kernels bring us corn plants, okay? Now, in, in essence, we're talking about a scientific statement that the DNA, the genetic information that God created in those original kinds, is passed on to future generations. And although he built into organisms the ability to adapt to their environment through natural selection and, in some cases, random mutations... Nonetheless, the Bible is very clear that God created plants and animals to reproduce after their own kind. 
But am I right that most people hear a very different story than that? Most people hear that over millions and millions and millions of years, as a creature passes on its genetic information to future generations through the process of natural selection and random mutations, can actually change the nature of their genome and add information so that one creature will turn into a completely different kind of creature over millions of years. Now, you guys have heard that, that account of history, correct? But you know what? They both can't be true. Not at the same time. The Bible and that idea can't. You know, and if kids are in school, you know, perhaps they have a science teacher that's telling them, you know, when we're talking about science, we're talking about facts. But, but if you happen to be one of those people that go to church and you believe Bible stories, and if those Bible stories give you hope and purpose and meaning in your life, I, I won't hold that against you. You can believe your Bible stories. But just remember that when we're talking about science, you see, we're dealing with facts. You know, for example, let's say that you believe that Bible story that millions of Israelites walked across the Red Sea on dry land with two walls of water opposing gravity on either side. Now, if Bible stories like that give you hope and purpose and meaning in your life, I, I won't hold that against you if you want to believe that, but keep in mind that when we're dealing with science, we just deal with facts. Or let's say you believe that that Bible story where a man was inside a fish for three days and somehow able to survive, or that a man could walk on water that was not frozen, or that a man could be clinically dead for three days and self-resuscitate. Now, if Bible stories like that give you hope and purpose and meaning in your life, I, I won't hold that against you. You can believe those Bible stories, but please understand when we're talking about science, we're dealing with facts. Now, do you see the decision that has to be made? And it's not just our kids, am I right? I mean, do any of you have maybe family members that think you're just a little nuts for believing the Bible? Because scientists have proven that evolution in millions of years are a fact. So, this morning, are you prepared right now with a defense for your faith in this very area? And if we're not, what's going to happen? You know, perhaps you've heard the Barnett Institute statistics that say that two-thirds of Christians raised in, or two-thirds of youth raised in Christian homes, by the time they get to be the age 18, are leaving the faith. Have you guys heard that Barnett statistic? That's kind of sobering, isn't it? Of course, we're talking about somebody else's kids, not ours, right? But to be fair, other denominations, when this uh, study came out, they surveyed their own people and came up with completely different percentages of those leaving the faith. But let me ask you a question. Which percentage is acceptable to you and your family? You know, uh, not too long ago, we made a documentary where we went on to college campuses here in the United States. And we asked a series of questions. First, we asked, in the past, did you regularly attend church? If they did, we gave them some follow-up questions. Do you believe in creation or evolution? Now, the vast majority said that they believed in evolution. And so we asked them a follow-up question. We said that in the past, had anyone ever given you any scientific evidence that supports the historical account of the Bible? And with the exception of only one gentleman of hundreds, 
They all answered, no. In fact, they questioned that there was any. And every single one of those, hundreds of students, no longer attended church. Of the five, and only five, that said that they believed that the Bible's account of creation was true, okay, each one of them gave a testimony that indeed they had been given scientific evidence that supports the historical account, and they all continued to attend church. So I hope you can see why it is vital for every believer to be equipped with a defense for their faith in this area. I mean, Jesus himself, he said, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. Then how will you believe when I speak of heavenly things? And that's why we're here today. That's why we do speak in over 1,000 churches worldwide every year. Not to give you a whole bunch of science, but to give you answers to the questions that are being answer, asked in our culture and even with our own children and grandchildren so that we're prepared to defend our faith and the word of God. Well, like I said, we're going to talk a little bit about science. If you didn't like science in junior high, don't pull out your pillow and take a nap. I'm going to make it easy to understand, okay? But you know, when most people think about science, you know what they think about? They think about what we call operational or experimental science. Now, do you guys remember using the scientific method maybe when you were in junior high school, where you develop a, hypo you develop a hypothesis, you perform an experiment, you make observations, you record data, and you can repeat it. Do you guys remember the scientific method? You know, for example, let's say someone here this morning did not believe in the law of gravity, okay? We could actually do a test, we could make an experiment. We could move into the laboratory, make observations, record data. We could repeat it, all right? And the scientific discoveries we get from this kind of science bring us things like laptop computers and even allow us to explore into space and medical advances that benefit us all. But I want to make sure you understand something this morning, and that is that when we're talking about evolution, or for that matter, anything in the happen that happened in the past. Did you know it's not this kind of science? What we're talking about here is historic, or what many call forensic science. Now, let's say in the same way that someone here believed that a fish, over millions and millions of years, passing on its genetic information to future generations, could actually add information to its DNA so that one day one of its... Uh, uh, offspring would sprout new novel structures that would allow it to walk onto land. Okay? Now, if you believe that to be true, all right, can you do an experiment to show that's the case? Can you observe it happening? Is it repeatable? See what we're talking about here? Now, this is a fossil, all right? In fact, this happens to be Freddy the fish. I know his name, all right? And what happened is he was swimming along happily, and then the scientific term is that he got smushed, okay? Now, let me ask you a question. Does this fossil exist in the past or the present? Okay, wait, 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 wait. I heard different answers to that question. Maybe I need to clarify the question. Let me ask again. Does this fossil, this one right here, can you guys see it there? Okay, how about over there? Okay, does this fossil exist in the past or the present? Present. You see, all of the evidence we have ex exists in the present. And when we dig up a fossil, tell me, does it come with a label on it that tells us how old it is or what it ate or how it lived? 
No, what we have to do is we take the evidence that's with us in the present and we paint a picture of what we believe happened in the past. And that is because, you see, the evidence doesn't speak for itself. But let me check. No, it doesn't, all right? What we have to do is interpret, all right? Now, let me ask you another question. We'll do a show of hands, a little vote here. And that is, who has the most evidence, evolution or creation? Okay, how many people say evolution has the most evidence? All right, how many people say creation has the most evidence? All right, can I ask you a follow-up question? When the paleontologists are looking at the fossil record that's available around the world in museums as well as in, in the uh, paleontological digs that are around the world, all right? Do the creation scientist and the evolutionary scientist, when they're looking at the evidence in the present, does one have more or less evidence to observe? No, it's all the same evidence, correct? Just a different interpretation. Or maybe when a, a scientist is looking up through his telescope at a, at a distant galaxy and the light is coming back through his telescope and being transferred into his mass spectrometer, all right? Do the creation scientist and the evolutionary scientist, which one has more evidence to observe? Neither one, right? They have the same evidence. Do you get it? All right, I got some deer in the headlights looks from some of the people back there. So let's go ahead and do our own little experiment. Take a look at this fact. Go ahead and draw your conclusions. But here's the hypothesis I would like you to consider, and that is what's missing or what was this originally? I'm going to make it easier. I'm going to make it multiple choice. How many people think it was A? Okay, how about, how about B? Okay, C? No optimists in this crowd, apparently. Okay, how many people think it was D? Okay, so you want to know the answer? Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this before you respond. Why did you look for something missing? Because I asked you to look for something missing. What I did is I gave you what we call in scientists, science, I gave you a presupposition. Okay, that's an assumption that you use when looking at the evidence. So congratulations, everyone. Your conclusion was completely consistent with that presupposition. But unfortunately, the presupposition was wrong, which I gave you, so I tricked you. But I want to make sure you understand this. This happens every day. We are tricked every day. Same thing happens when you're maybe watching a program on PBS Discovery Channel or what have you, or, or opening a textbook or reading a magazine article about evolution. In fact, the next thing I'm going to say is the most important thing I'm going to say this morning. The thing that I want you to remember more than anything else, especially students, and that is, that when you are watching a program about evolution or perhaps opening a textbook, you are not being given facts. You guys hear me? You're not being given facts. You're being given an interpretation of facts that's based on a presupposition that in the case of evolution, I'm hoping that you can discover, has some really big scientific problems. And I think we need to be like the Bereans. Do you guys remember them? You know, they were trying to find what was the truth, what are the facts, and shouldn't we do the same here? Historic science is like that television show CSI, and I don't know if Pastor Doug allows you to watch such programs. I only do so for research purposes myself. But 
In case you haven't seen the program, scientists are digging up evidence and facts about a crime that happened in the past, and those facts of evidence are presented inside a courtroom to the jury, as well as to opposing attorneys. And it's interesting, even though all the facts are the same for both sides, right? Each attorney has a different interpretation. One attorney is saying, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, clearly, you've seen the evidence with your own eyes right here in the present, and obviously, my client is innocent. You guys got that, right? I mean, it's easy. Yet this one is saying, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I don't know what facts he's talking about. Obviously, the evidence shows that he's guilty. And this one's saying, wait, wait, don't be fooled. He's misinterpreting the evidence. And this one's saying, I'm not the one misinterpreting. He is. But it's the same facts, the same information, the same evidence, but two different interpretations. And it's up to the jury to decide which one makes the most sense. But folks, in this case, it's being waged in our culture, in this case of creation and evolution debate, am I right that most people have only heard one side of the story, right? And, and many of them didn't come to church this morning, and I don't, I don't really blame them. But the question is, if that's the case, if they're in your families and neighborhoods, who is going to tell them the other side? All right, now we're going to take a look at a little bit of evidence that makes sense of the historical account of the Bible. And I'm going to start out with an icon of evolution in millions of years, namely the Grand Canyon, which gives me an excellent opportunity to throw in a family vacation shot, all right? But if you were to go to the Grand Canyon today, you would, of course, be told that it took millions of years for those layers to be laid down and millions of years for them to erode. And indeed, when we look at the process of sedimentation, the laying down of those layers, what we observe in the present is that it's a very slow process. You might sweep off a little dust off your windowsill each year. And so, if what happens today is what's always happened in the past, I would grant you, it had to take millions of years. However, did you know that the evidence is overwhelming that these massive layers were laid down by water. And, and where else do we find layers like this? I mean, the Grand Canyon, obviously, but anywhere else? I mean, did you notice that whenever they cut into the side of a mountain to do a road cut, do you notice what you see there? In fact, virtually everywhere in the world, if you start digging, you're going to find massive layers just like this. And guess what's inside those layers? Fossils. So let me ask you a question. Can you think of any historical event in the Bible that is recorded that might suggest the idea of massive sedimentary layers laid down by water, including the evidence of dead things covering the entire planet? Does anything come to mind? Anything you've read before? And I had a young man about 16 years old come up to me and he said, you've got to be kidding. I mean, your Bible, you say you're scientific, but you also say you believe the Bible because you know what? Your Bible says that the highest mountains in the world were covered by water, and there's not enough water to do that. <laughs> ha, gotcha. So how do you answer a question like that? Well, I get excited because I can show him this. Yeah, where did all the water come from? Do you guys remember in junior high school that 70% of our planet is covered by extremely deep oceans? 
In fact, did you know this, that if you were able to push all the continents and mountains down and raise the ocean basins up and reform this planet, just like a perfect sphere, like a basketball, did you know that there would be almost two miles of water covering this planet with just the water that's in the ocean basins today? Now, does that sound like enough water for a cataclysmic flood like the Bible tells us about? And you know what? It's even more exciting than that because you need to know that in the sedimentary layers that are at the top of the highest mountains in the world, including Mount Everest, they find fossilized marine invertebrates, okay, that's clams and crabs, indicating that the layers that are now at the top of the highest mountains in the world, not only here, but all around the world, were one time underneath the oceans, just like God's word has been telling us all along. So, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, do you see the evidence? It doesn't support evolution in millions of years. The Bible is true. Now, speaking of those layers taking millions of years, I mean, here is 24 feet of thousands of, of, thousands of fine layers of rock. Now, did these layers take millions of years? I mean, certainly at least thousands, you would think, right? Actually, no. In this case, these layers were laid down in three hours, okay? And that was on June 12th, 1980, right after the eruption of Mount St. Helens, which made a little impact on me since I was 63 miles from the volcano when it erupted. And this is just a little bit of the ash that was three inches thick in my parents' front yard. Also, another opportunity to slip in yet another family vacation shot. But if you were to go to Mount St. Helens today, you would actually find this canyon. Now, this canyon is huge. It's 140th the scale of the Grand Canyon. And if you weren't there to see it formed, you might reasonably assume it took a really long time to form, to have that little bitty river cut through those layers of rock. But you would actually be wrong, because this canyon was formed in only one day. And that was March 19th, 1982, after a flow came through here at highway speed, cutting through the then soft layers, which only decades later have now been turned to stone. Now, does that remind you of anything else you've seen before? So, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you see, the evidence does not support millions of years because the Bible and science show us that given the right catastrophic conditions that would be present at a worldwide flood, this is what we see. And there's plenty more evidence that supports that too. The Bible is true. Now that same gentleman that challenged me about the water, he said, no, whoa, wait, 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 wait. You guys, you scientists keep talking about fossils and everybody knows it takes millions of years to form a fossil. <laughs> gotcha. So how do you answer a question like that? I get excited, because <laughs> we get to talk about where fossils come from. Now, if you were to open up a textbook or perhaps go to a museum, you would likely find an explanation like this, where Mr. Dinosaur dies and he sinks to the bottom of the ocean, and over millions and millions of years is slowly buried, and then millions of years later, through the process of permineralization, his bones are turned to stone, until finally discovered by a paleontologist or perhaps an erosional event uncovers Mr. Dinosaur. Now, I will admit at one time this made sense to me, but 
Is this what we actually observe in the real world today? You see, a number of years ago, I took my daughter to Walmart, and I bought her two goldfish, and she named them Romeo and Juliet. Now, that was on a Thursday. It was just two days later, 5 a.m., Saturday morning. She is yelling from her room, Daddy, come look, look, Daddy, come here, quick. Daddy, you got to see this. Hurry, Daddy, look, look. And being a very gentle and kind father at 5 a.m. on a Saturday morning, I came into her room and said, what? And she goes, look, Daddy, Romeo is kissing Juliet. And being a man of science, I rubbed my eyes and took a closer observation and corrected her and said, no, honey, actually, Romeo is, um, well, eating Juliet. <laughs> poor, poor Juliet. And if, if any, of you, any of you have, you know, fish in a fish tank at home and one of your precious fish die, where, where do you find them? They're going to be floating. If you don't believe me, you can do an experiment this afternoon. Just get a drop of cyanide, put it in the tank, and no, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. But is it true that when we're watching a high-definition documentary and the cameras come down on the ocean bottom, is it true that what we do is we see thousands of sea creatures lying there fully intact, waiting to be slowly buried over millions of years in order to be turned into fossils? Is that what we observe in the real world? No, so you see, if I really wanted to make a fossil of my daughter's remaining goldfish, what I had to do was get a shovel of concrete, sneak into her room in the middle of the night, okay, and then throw it in there really quickly. Yeah, my wife didn't think it was funny either, but is there any evidence that supports this idea that the only way that we can get a fossil is through rapid and catastrophic burial, quick burial, like we would have in a worldwide flood like the Bible tells us about. Well, take a look at this. Here's a fish that was buried so quickly it was caught right in the middle of having lunch. Or how about this one? Here's an ichthyosaur in the process of giving birth. Now, ladies, I've heard your stories of really long labors of millions of years, right? I mean, is that really what happens? Just wait here. No. This is a catastrophic event. How about this? Here's a hat that was buried for only 20 years. You might say it evolved from a soft hat into a hard hat. Or how about this? Here is a bag of flour after only decades turned to stone. Or in this case, we have a teddy bear that took three to five months to be completely calcified and qualify as a fossil. So ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you see it does not take millions of years. It just takes the right physical and chemical properties that would be brought to us by a worldwide cataclysmic flood like the Bible tells us. You see, the Bible is true. So I have an important question I want to ask you guys today. Uh, those examples that I just shared with you just now, um, was I talking over anyone's head? I mean, did you guys understand what I was talking about? And more important than that, can you see yourself getting equipped with information like this that you can use for the sake of your children and your grandchildren and maybe even your neighbors, coworkers, fellow students, people that need to know Christ? And if they have that intellectual barrier that evolution is a fact and won't even consider listening to you or coming to church, then who's going to tell them the truth 
unless it's believers like us, following God's command to always be prepared. And listen, I, I need to cover something. I know some of you are thinking this, um, that, you know, what's the big deal about the millions of years? I mean, after all, the Bible is a book of morality, and I mean, shouldn't we just stick with the important doctrines of the Bible? But I, I'd like to challenge you a little bit and ask you a question. Do you think if we could add millions of years into the Bible, do you think it might impact some important doctrines? Well, let's take a look at that. You see, in both the Old and the New Testament, there are a bunch of genealogies. Have you noticed that God thinks they're kind of important? <laughs> There's quite a few of them there. They're, it's great bedtime reading, if you need. You know. But when you go into the Old Testament, you've got to understand, it'll say that so-and-so was so old when his son was born, and he was so old when his son was born, and he was so old when his son was born, and on and on and on, to the point that you can actually use some simple mathematics and add up those generations and you'll get a reliable time span from Adam all the way up to Abraham. Does that make sense so far? Okay. And after that, notice that God talks about time all the time. He mentions how long the captivity in Egypt was, down to how many years it was precisely, how long the exodus was, that this king in Israel ruled for this many years, followed by this king for this many years, followed by this king for this many years, and the exile was exactly this long God's trying to tell us something here, you know? In fact, if you added up all of those historical events that are recorded and the time, you'll get a reliable time span from Adam all the way up to Jesus. Does that make sense so far? Okay, now, if we know how much time there was from Adam to Jesus, and if we know all the historical events that happened during that time, according to the Bible, let me ask you this. If we want to force millions of years into the Bible because we believe that science can't be wrong, okay, can we squeeze them between Adam and Jesus? Tell me. No, not logically, certainly. There's no space. But you know what a lot of people do? They say that each day in Genesis represents millions of years. Have you heard that? It's, it's really common. It's probably the most common view in the church today. But bear with me, if, if you will. Let me, let me mention something. If you do believe that, I want to let you know that there's a huge doctrinal problem, and I'm holding it in my hand right here. Because that means that if there were millions of years before Adam, before the fall, before the curse, that means that there's death before God's curse on man. Does that sound like we might be touching on an important doctrine? Let's take a look at that a little further. You see, in the very last verse of Genesis chapter 1, God said that his creation wasn't just good, but this last time he said it was what? Very good. So what does a very good world look like? By the way, that very good in the Hebrew means awesome. You see, it was a perfect paradise. It was perfect. We were created to, be, to live in harmony with our creator forever. It was a perfect place, and there was no death, no sorrow, no pain, okay? But did you know that according to the, the book of Genesis here, it says that God said that I give you plants for food? How many people knew that? Do you guys know that? I get plants for food. So not to disappoint you folks in Texas, but that means originally... In that perfect paradise, there was no barbecue. 
But notice he gives the animals the same command. He said, I give you plants for food as well. So that would mean that both man and animal in this perfect paradise when there was no death were originally what? Vegetarians, which comes from an ancient Hebrew term that means bad hunter, okay? <laughs> but just in case you're feeling guilty because maybe you had some bacon with your eggs this morning or something, I want to let you know that later on, after the flood, God said, just as I gave you green plants for food, I now give you everything for food, which some people use as biblical justification to eat things like this. <laughs> everything. But seriously, you've got to understand that that perfect creation, there was no death, no sorrow, no pain. It was a perfect place. And we were to live for eternity in communion with our creator. But everybody here knows that we don't live in a world like that anymore, do we? It's because something went terribly wrong. See, God commanded Adam. He said that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely what? Die. You see, this is exactly when death came into the world for the very first time. And if we're to take that, the Bible as it's plainly written, that it was a perfect paradise, and we put millions of years before the fall, does it make any sense to you that God would call it very good? Okay? No. And by the way, I want to let you know that this is the bookend of the Bible. In Genesis, we have in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was a perfect paradise. No death, no sorrow, no pain. But because of man's disobedience, we do worship a loving God, but he's also just, and we should all be thankful for that. And the justice for disobedience was what? Death. In fact, every descendant of Adam inherited that sin nature. That's what the Bible tells us. It says that he was the first Adam. But God sent a rescue mission, didn't he? In the last Adam, who is? Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfect life to become the perfect Lamb of God, to pay the penalty for our sin. So that in the future, all those that are in Christ, you guys remember the end of the Bible, what it says? It says, in the future, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And guess what? It's going to be like the first one, where there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. Is anybody else looking forward to that? We will live in eternity with our Creator, who, by the way, is Jesus Christ that second person of the Trinity, because the New Testament tells us that by him and through him, all things were created through Jesus. And shouldn't we take his word for it? But do you see what happens when we put millions of years of death before Adam? We're actually turning the gospel upside down. Paradise created, paradise restored. We can't have death for it to be very good. You guys get that? And if you don't think it's important, maybe you'll take the word of an atheist. This atheist in a debate with a Christian said this. Listen to his words. He said, the most devastating thing, though, that biology did to Christianity was the discovery of biological evolution. He said, now that we know that Adam and Eve were never real people, then the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. He went on to say, this atheist went on to say, if there never was an Adam and Eve, because he believes we descended from ape-like creatures, all right, then there never was an original sin. And if there never was an original sin, then there's no need of salvation. And guess what? If there's no need of salvation, then there is no need of a savior. 
So I submit that puts Jesus, historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. He said, I think evolution is absolutely the death knell of Christianity. And I agree with him. I mean, he's an atheist. I don't agree with everything. But if evolution is true, the Bible cannot be. And I know some people say, well, we really shouldn't cause division in the church. I mean, after all, I mean, we do worship a big and powerful God. And he could have created in any way he wanted, including over millions of years. And I'll agree with you. He could have created in any way he wanted. But don't you think it's about time that we allow God to tell us how he created through his word? And speaking of causing a huge division in the church, this guy sure did that, didn't he? A little over 500 years ago, and listen to what he had to say. He said, when Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then why don't you grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are? He said, for you are to deal with Scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God himself says what is written, but since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you wantonly to turn his word in the direction you wish to go. Nature of our, go our culture might be better stated by this modern theologian who said this. He said, they, they, meaning Christians, used to hang the whole thing on one hook. If you don't do these things, if you don't act morally, then you're going to burn in hell. But listen to what he said next. He said, unfortunately, with what we know about science, anyone who, anyone who thinks at all probably doesn't believe in that fire and brimstone stuff anymore. So you know what? Organized religion has lost their voice to hold up their moral hand. Doesn't that reflect our culture today? I mean, he's basically saying now that science has proven that the Bible's biology, geology, astronomy, and history are wrong because evolution in millions of years have been proven to be scientific fact, then that means that the rest of the Bible is wrong, including the morality. So you Christians, science tells me, you have no right to tell me how to live my life because you believe in a Bible that's been proven wrong. But you know what? I'll tell you what we're going to do. If you guys want to believe those Bible stories, if they give you hope and purpose and meaning in your life, that's fine. I, I won't hold that against you. You can believe those Bible stories, and I'll believe what I want to believe. You know, and that way you, we can just coexist. We can get along, right? And that way you'll be okay, and then I'll be. Wait, am I going to be okay? In an eternal sense? But isn't this a good reflection of the culture we live in right now? So this morning, are you prepared to demolish arguments like that, that are, that are standing up against our, our own children and grandchildren, uh, being challenged about the truth of the word, as well as the neighbors that we're called to reach? Now, I know that there are a lot of questions out there, and in fact, I will be more than happy to answer any of your questions here outside in the lobby. Um, and, and I know that when I was young, I would ask these questions, and I would, the answer I usually got in church was, just have faith. But you know what? That's not <laughs> what this scripture commands every believer to do. We're, we are commanded to have a defense for our faith and to share it with other people to answer their questions. 
So I hope you don't mind me being very practical right now. I, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I remember about 10% of sermons for 10 minutes, and then it's gone. Now, I'm sure that's not true with Pastor Doug. You meditate on his message all week long, right? But tell me this. If you did listen to a recording of his message a second and third time, would you understand the information better? Okay. Well, that's what this verse is telling us, is to be prepared with an answer. All right? Preparation is an action verb, so I hope you don't mind me being very practical. You may have noticed that we did bring some resources with us today. And the reason that we bring those, we don't sell them because we don't just to make money. That isn't what funds our ministry. It's the donors around the world that do that. But our vision is to see an army of believers around the world, including right here in the San Antonio area, of people that are equipped with a defense for their faith. And not just for the sake of their own children and grandchildren, although that's vital. Ladies and gentlemen, we talked about those statistics. It's vital. But also, what about reaching our neighbors, our coworkers, people that don't know Christ, to be proactive, to have a defense for our faith in this area? Because this is likely the reason that they're not even going to consider the Bible to be true in the first place. We need to be equipped. So again, I hope you don't mind me being very practical. I'd like to feature one particular resource that, I, that would be great for as many families as possible to have in their home, and that is Creation Magazine. Now, why? Well, we started publishing this 43 years ago, and it's the most read publication of its kind in the world. It's easy to read. It has information that everybody in the family can understand. Uh, it's 56 pages, comes out quarterly, but there's no advertising, Okay. So I don't know if you guys get magazines at home, but if you pulled out all the advertising, would you have 56 pages left? Well, what's left in here isn't just a good recipe for butternut squash. This is information that you'll be able to use even starting this afternoon to help equip yourself and your family. You can maybe use in the workplace tomorrow using a gentle and loving approach. We've got to remember that in order to give this information out. It's a resource like no other in the world. And like I said, we get more testimonies of people coming to know Christ than anything else that we have. So just so you know, the reason that you're able to start this afternoon, if you do subscribe today, all right, you'll be able to take the latest issue home with you uh, and start reading it this afternoon. Um, just comes out to be a little bit less than a premium drink at Starbucks every quarter. So it's not, it's not something that'll, that'll do it. But it's going to keep you up. You'll get the first issue free. Also, every month, we're going to send you a brief newsletter that will give you more information so that every month you have something. In addition to that, you'll get our digital version of the magazine for up to five devices, okay? So you'll be able to forward a link to everyone in your family or any friends that you choose. Everybody can have their own copy on their iPad or tablet or phone, or PC. But if, if you do a two-year subscription instead of one, it's pretty exciting because not only do you get all of that stuff, but you also get two DVDs. This one was an award-winning documentary. Come on. Award-winning documentary that uh, is very high quality. You won't be embarrassed to show this to anyone. It's extremely. In fact, um, National Geographic wanted to buy this from us so they could bury it. They offered us a lot of money, and we were wise enough not to let them have it. But this is information that you will be able to share with people to start opening people's minds. 
that maybe evolution isn't the fact that it thought it was. And the second DVD that we'll give you is this one, the one I was telling you about before. You can hear these students in their own words tell why they remained or left at the church. And our scientists will answer the challenges that they had. So in a moment, we're going to circulate sign-up sheets that look like this, where we need your name and address, like that. So gentlemen, if right now you could do the same thing and pass those out. And again, if you guys could do me a favor and pass those around, that would be great. And then when you're done, take those back to my friends that are back by the table, and you'll get your free gifts. But listen, while those are going around, all right, let me just give you a couple, two examples of things you would read in the magazine that you can start even using today. How many people here have heard that carbon dating proves millions of years? Right? Most people think that's the case. But let me give you an example. A sample was taken from a volcanic lava dome, and it was sent to a potassium argon dating lab. Come on. Here we go. Sample was taken to a potassium argon dating lab, and they gave it an age of 350,000 years. Okay? Now, a mineral was extracted from that same sample, and this time an age of 900,000 years. And yet another mineral was extracted, and this time they said it was up to 2.8 million years. So it was the same sample sent to the same potassium argon dating lab, but they got all these different dates. So which one do you guys think is the correct date? Actually, you're correct. It is none of those. This is the correct date. And why do we know that? Because this sample was taken from the Mount St. Helens volcanic lava dome. And that rock had only formed 10 years before. So if we get incorrect radioisotope dates of rocks when we know the age, do you think that might bring into question radioisotope dates when we don't know the age? And by the way, this is not an isolated example. These things have happened over and over and over again. And then let me just share one more example with you. And if you guys haven't heard this one, it's going to blow your mind. And that is that Dr. Mary Schweitzer, who's an evolutionist at the time at Montana State University, made a discovery that she said was beyond belief. And what she discovered is inside a femur bone of a T-Rex, she found red blood cells. Thinking about that? <laughs> They're supposed to be over 65 million years old. And she found red blood cells. Listen to what she said. She said, I got goosebumps. It was exactly like looking at a slice of modern bone. But of course, I couldn't, what? Believe it. I said to the lab technician, the bones, after all, they are 65 million years old. How could blood cells survive that long? And listen to what happened next, because it got more exciting, because they dissolved the bony matrix. And then what they found inside was soft, fibrous tissue that was flexible and resilient that could be stretched. In fact, here's a video of that first discovery that has now been repeated in the lab over and over again. Does that look 65 million years old to you? And listen to how she responded. She said, it was totally shocking. I didn't, be what? Believe it until we'd done it, what? 17 times. Do you guys remember when we were talking about operational and experimental science? You know, here's the evidence right there in the present, right before her eyes, but she said, I couldn't believe it. And you know what? I don't blame her because sometimes our faith is really strong. It's hard to let go. But 
I would like to give you a different interpretation of this evidence, if you don't mind. If I'm just going to go out on a limb on the backs of the scientists that work for my organization and give you a different interpretation. Would that be okay? The dinosaur bones are not 65 million years old. Okay? The evidence is strong for that, and we have plenty of resources that will back that up. You can blow people's minds. I hope you've been able to enjoy this. There are a lot of ways that if you want to help us to speak to more people, I have some pastor's packs that you could give out to maybe friends that go to different churches. Um, also, you can go to our website, which is what? And besides the magazine, I would just like to tell you about two things. One is our starter pack that includes three things. This book, the answers book, which answers the most asked questions about dinosaurs, carbon dating, uh, you know, did God really create in six days? And my favorite question, where did Cain get his wife when he wasn't able? Also, um, Refuting Evolution is in the starters pack. This is the biggest selling creation book of all time. And then uh, the other pack I'd like to tell you about is Evolution's Achilles Heels. This film won second place at the Christian Worldview Film Festival just two years ago. We have had people watch this film and in only one sitting decide evolution can't be true. It features 15 PhD scientists talking about the weaknesses. But folks, information like this didn't even exist 20 years ago, and I think right now is an exciting time to be a Christian. But I'd like to conclude with the question we started with today. And that is, are you willing to equip yourself with the answers to the tough questions that people are asking so that you can be the one that dives in and rescues the perishing while perhaps others stand by and watch, so that you can fulfill this command to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. All right, thank you. You have been listening to CT Church in San Antonio, Texas. This recording was presented in the context of our Sunday service. For more information, please visit us at ctagsa.com. Connect with us on Facebook or call us at 210-657-3578.